We open our Bible now to the church's songbook, the Psalter, the book of Psalms, Psalm 103. It's very rare that I expound one verse, uh, but I will be doing so this morning, but I think we need to read the entirety of the psalm. Let us pray briefly before reading God's word. We ask, Heavenly Father, as sinners in need of grace, that as we read this psalm together and especially focus upon this one verse, that the word of the Lord will penetrate deeply into our hearts and into our consciences. We pray especially for those who are cold in heart, who are distant from you, who are recalcitrant, who build up barriers. We pray that you will tear them down, and we ask that we will make your people holy. Grant that your word now will warm our hearts, instruct our minds, and change our affections, for we ask it in the name of the Savior, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Psalm 103, this is the word of God, of David. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like the flower of the field, for the wind passes over it and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. We draw your attention to verse 19. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. There's nothing more comforting and encouraging for the child of God than the scripture's teaching on the sovereignty of God. It is a doctrine for which Christians should earnestly contend. The Bible, the Christian faith, the Christian life, all of these things make no sense apart 
from the sovereignty of God. On the other hand, this teaching is a great rock of offense to the world. God sits on his throne, and that's where fallen man wants to be. The attitude is summarized in that well-known poem of W.E. Henley, the lines of which go, It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishment the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. But according to Holy Scripture, we are not the masters of our fate, and we are not the captains of our souls. We do not live in a chance universe. Chance, luck, fate are pagan concepts, not Christian concepts, that the triune God purposefully and personally predestines and rules providentially are biblical concepts. Nothing is outside of God's sovereign purview. Nothing and no one can thwart God's eternal plan and purpose. Nothing outside of God determines his being or his actions. God is self-contained, and you cannot even know yourself aright until you accept God's interpretation of the universe that he has sovereignly made. And that is the clear point of verse 19. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. God's kingdom, that is to say, his sovereign rule, is over all. All. Nothing and no one excluded. The Hebrew text, as a matter of fact, puts the definite article before the word all in order to underscore the comprehensiveness of God's sovereignty. And the great comfort that comes to us immediately as we read this verse is the the context in which we find it. His sovereignty means that his promises in the covenant of grace are promises that he keeps. You see here in verse 17, the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. Well, how is it that God keeps his promises? Well, it is because he is the sovereign God, the one who has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. God in his covenant love then is able to accomplish what he says he will because the universe is under his sway. The mission of the church will not fail because the sovereign God is behind it. And our task this morning is to try to understand something of what it means that God has established his throne in the heavens, something of what it means that God is sovereign and to comprehend something of this for our encouragement and for our lives and for the church's mission in the world. Despite what you may feel, despite what you may hear on the news broadcasts, despite apparent contradictions before your eyes, the Holy Scriptures teach us the absolute sovereignty of God. So what does this mean? The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom. That is to say, his sovereignty rules over all. I would point these things out to us today. First, it means that God is sovereign in dispensing his gifts. God is sovereign in dispensing his gifts. If you are gifted with beauty, physical beauty... That is God's good gift. If you are blessed with intelligence, that is his gift. If you are blessed with shelter and family, 
That is God's gift. The place of your birth is according to the sovereignty of God. Tell me, why is it that you were born in the United States of America rather than in North Korea? Is it because we were better? Was it by chance? The answer of the Word of God is God has so ordered it. It is His dispensing of His gifts in His sovereignty. The parents that we have, the homes that we have, the the pastor's call, your usefulness in the kingdom, all of this is determined by the sovereignty of God in the dispensing of His gifts. And so we Christians are responsible to hoist sails in God's service, but only God can cause the wind to blow and move the ship along. God is sovereign in the dispensing of his gifts. But then secondly, God is sovereign in the affairs of men and of nations. God is sovereign in the affairs of men and of nations. The rulers of this world are not sovereign. God sets up one and he pulls down another. The proverb tells us the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord like rivers of water. He moveth it whithersoever he will. Even men's thoughts and actions for which they are responsible are under God's sovereignty. You think back to 2 Kings chapter 22. There we have Micaiah the prophet telling Ahab the king, If you return in peace, the Lord has not spoken by me. And he said, Hear all you peoples. And King Ahab went out into war. And the text tells us that a certain man drew his bow at random and struck the king of Israel between the scale of armor and the breastplate. And then we read on in that chapter, the king died and was brought to Samaria, and they buried the king in Samaria, and they washed the chariot by the pool of Samaria, and the dogs licked up his blood, which had been prophesied earlier, as we read in the book of Kings. And the prostitutes washed themselves in it according to the word of the Lord that he had spoken. So here is proud King Ahab, who thinks himself sovereign, God says through his prophet, you will not return alive. Someone at random draws the bow, lets the arrow fly. From human perspective, it is at random. From the perspective of the sovereignty of God, his own hand pulls the bow, lets the arrow fly, and directs it to Ahab, the king. We have been going through this Christmas season and hearing the familiar words that in the days of Caesar Augustus, All the world should be registered. Now, it just so happened that that was at the time in which Mary, in her pregnancy, must go to Bethlehem to fulfill the prophecy of Micah 5, 2, that the Messiah be born in Bethlehem of Judea. Was it chance? Was it luck? Not at all. He's sovereign in the affairs of men. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and vanity, the Bible says. History then is going somewhere. We needn't be discouraged when we hear the news and think, oh, it's just an endless cycle of this kind of thing. History is not an endless random cycle of meaningless events. He doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand 
or say to him, what doest thou? Daniel 4.35. And when Christ says that his mission for the church is to go make disciples, and behind it stands his sovereign authority, his purpose among the nations will be accomplished. But then thirdly, I would like to point out that this text, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom, that is his sovereignty rules over all, also teaches us that God is sovereign in the salvation of sinners. God is sovereign in the salvation of sinners. Now this word kingdom in the Old Testament has a broader, more comprehensive viewpoint of the sovereignty of God. In the New Testament, kingdom has the idea of the redemptive rule and reign of Jesus Christ. When we read in the Humanist Manifesto 2, no deity will save us, we must save ourselves, that flies right in the face of what the scriptures teach us. And yet I wonder... How many Christians failing to grasp that God is absolutely sovereign have fallen into that kind of humanistic thinking that no deity will save us, we must save ourselves. No, no, the triune God of the Bible is our Savior God. The God who saves helpless, hopeless sinners who can do nothing to save themselves. I hope you realize that really there are only two religions in the world. It is the religion of free will that says that man can earn salvation, that he has within his own power to produce something that is acceptable to God, or at least to bring himself into a savable state. There is the religion of free will, and there is the religion of free grace. Those who understand that we can do nothing, we are helpless, we are hopeless, we can produce nothing, we cannot even bring ourselves into a savable state, we are completely dependent upon God's sovereignty for our salvation. God is sovereign to save. Think about it. When God chose Israel and left the nations in darkness, was it because Israel was better? Was it because they were larger? Was it because they were more prestigious? Was it because they had produced something within them that was, made them acceptable to God? No, not at all. Deuteronomy 7, 7 and following tells us the Lord did not, did not set his love upon you nor choose you because you were more in number than any people For ye were fewest of all people, but because the Lord loved you. Absolute sovereignty. Why does God love us, his people? Is it because we're better? Is it because we've earned something? Is it because we're capable of bringing ourselves into a savable state? No, God loves you because he loves you. And in the same congregation, think of this. We have those who come and those who hear. They hear the gospel week after week. They hear the word of God expounded and they thrive upon it. It is their very life. They breathe the gospel. They long to hear of Christ and his word. They understand the significance of the means of grace in their lives. And then there are others who come and they do not hear. They hear, but they do not hear. They walk away saying that sermon made no sense to me. I don't understand it. They walk away saying that Bible passage, what does that have to do with me? Or perhaps they're emotionally moved for a day or so, but it doesn't affect their lives permanently. Why is this? Why is it that two people can come in the congregation, they can have the same background, 
One will hear, one will not. One will be saved, one will be lost. Well, those who are lost are lost because they turn from the Savior. Those who are saved, it is because God saves in grace. It is not because the one who hears is more deserving, but because of the sovereignty of God. As the Puritan Stephen Carnock put it, God bows the hearts of men by the efficacy of his dominion. Who makes the difference between two sinners granting grace to the sinner who did not deserve it, leaving others to perish in their sins which they deserve? God and his sovereignty, salvation is of the Lord. It is God who calls men out of darkness into light. As our catechism teaches us, depending upon the authority of the Bible, in effectual calling, God convinces us of our sin and misery, enlightens our minds in the knowledge of Christ, and renewing our wills, he persuades and enables us to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered in the gospel. God's sovereignty is even the cause of our faith. Faith is not something we work up or develop. It is a gift of God. Men are dead in trespasses and sins, and only God can bring the dead to life. Sinners are saved because God does it. Someone here today are lost and undone, and you do not yet know the Savior. Do you realize that the Scriptures teach that all opposition to the truth is sinful and satanic? It is not simply academic. It is morally motivated. The scriptures teach that we, before knowing Christ by grace, hate God, hate his truth, oppose his truth. It is not simply an academic matter. Charles Spurgeon said beautifully, he is the creator of the heavens and the earth. He bears up the pillars of the universe. His breath perfumes the flowers. His pencil paints them. He is the author of this fair creation. We are the sheep of his pasture. He hath made us and not we ourselves. He stands to us in relation of a maker and creator. And from that fact he claims to be our king. He is our legislator, our lawmaker, and then to make our crime still worse and worse, he is the ruler of providence, for it is he who keeps us from day to day. He supplies our wants, he keeps the breath within our nostrils, he bids the blood still pursue its course through the veins. He holdeth us in life and preventeth us from death. He standeth before us, our creator and king, our sustainer, our benefactor. And I ask, is it not a sin of enormous magnitude? Is it not high treason against the emperor of heaven? Is it not an awful sin, the depth of which we cannot fathom with the line of our judgment, that we, his creatures, dependent upon him, should be at enmity with God. And yet it is true of fallen creatures. Let us take heart in this, however, that even though men's hearts are hard as stone, God can replace that with a heart of flesh because He is sovereign. Let us take heart in this for the mission of the church, that God will infallibly secure the salvation of his people. And Christian, may I say to you on this first Sunday of the new year, 
Be sure to give all the glory to God for your salvation from sin. Do not attempt to hold some of it for yourself or to think that you have some stitch in the robe. It is altogether of grace. Never say God did his part, he did all he could, I did the rest. The Christian message must ring out clearly. By grace are you saved. By grace are you saved through faith. And that faith is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. The sovereign will of God alone creates us heirs of grace, born in the image of His Son, a new created race, said one of the hymn writers. But let's move on. This verse, the Lord has established His throne in the heavens and His kingdom, that is, His sovereignty rules over all, also means that God is sovereign in our trials. And there are trials in our midst today, and there will be trials, tremendous trials in this congregation in the days ahead. Every new year brings with it the blessing of the knowledge of salvation by grace, and every new year brings with it the knowledge that our trials also are ordered under the hand of a good and sovereign God in this fallen world. You know, providence, by which we mean God's control and rule over all things, providence is minute. Uh, Turn to Ephesians chapter 1 for a moment, and let me remind you of a very, very important passage, a very important verse. It's verse 11 of the first chapter of Ephesians, in which we read, it's Ephesians 1.11, In him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Now look at it again. Having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his own will. His divine providence is minute. And it's unbiblical to think, well, God ordains the hours, but he doesn't ordain the minutes. If anything is outside of God's purpose, that thing would be determinative of God. And then that thing would set into motion a series of issues and circumstances that would be outside the sovereign control of God. No, the scriptures teach otherwise. All things are under his sovereign determination. How? Well, I know some of you are waiting to hear the answer to that. I don't know. Now, there are all sorts of philosophical answers that have been given, but I think they're all worthless. We Christians live by Holy Scripture, do we not? The Holy Scriptures say, you're a creature. And that means that you and I must embrace that fact with our limited knowledge and our perspectives. And one of the most important passages for believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, I'm convinced, is 2 Corinthians 5, 7, for we walk by faith and not by sight. And now there is a time coming in which we will walk by sight. When we get to heaven and our answers 
will be thoroughly satisfactory, all our questions. But right now we walk and we trust the God who saved us. We must believe two things in this regard. We must believe that God is sovereign. This is inscrutable, who has known the mind of the Lord, who has been his counselor. This is the greatest of mysteries. But it's true. God is sovereign. That's the first thing we must believe to be biblical. The second is, man is fully responsible for his own wicked deeds. And this is not illogical. It is supra-logical. It is not illogical. It is ultimately resolvable in the mind of God. And the grandest example of this of all is the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, Christian, you know the cross. The cross is not a mistake. The cross is not something that just happened by chance. Uh, The cross was no accident. From eternity, God determined to send his son to die on the cross. And yet, the scriptures also teach us The cross that was planned and purposed, that men who crucified him are fully responsible for their own wicked deeds. And you must hold both of these things together to be biblical in your thinking. Turn to the book of Acts. And let me remind you of two places in which we are explicitly told this. The first is in the preaching of Peter in Acts, the second chapter. In which, in verse 23, well, let's begin in verse 22. Peter says, Men of Israel, Acts 2, 22, Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. King James says the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. There you have it. The cross is determined, predestined, wicked men are responsible for their deeds. In the fourth chapter of the book of Acts, something similar. We have the believing community praying as Peter and John have been imprisoned, and they go back to the Psalms, and at the end of, um, well, the middle of verse 25, they quote the Psalm, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? This is from Psalm 2. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. And then they go on in their prayer, in verse 27, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do, look at verse 28, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. There it is. So we've reached our limits, haven't we? We've reached the limits of our abilities to understand, and we must worship and confess the incomprehensibility of God, who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor. As Calvin says, we may not mount up to the blinding light of God's decree and peer into his sacred counsel. 
But why does God reveal these things to us if not to strengthen us in Christian living and the church in fulfilling her call in the world? Were God not sovereign in my trials, my trials would have no meaning. And how could the church preach the gospel with confidence in the midst of fire, dungeon, and sword without these truths? You know, my trials and troubles and griefs are not without reason. They're hard, but they're not without reason. Matthew 10.30, but the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Again, was it luck that Caesar Augustus decreed that all the world should be registered? Was it fate that Joseph was sold into slavery? When we read in Genesis 45, verse 5, God did send me before you to preserve life. And in Genesis 50.20, the Romans 8.28 of the Old Testament... Ye thought evil against me, but God meant it for good. Was it chance that Esther found favor in the eyes of the Persian monarch just when her people needed an advocate? No, my friends, not a sparrow falls without him. He ordains, he rules, he overrules, he sanctifies my troubles, he extends his son's gospel in the world. He is our shepherd Lord who chooses, who guides, who loves, and who leads us in purposeful paths. Let me show you a verse. 2 Chronicles chapter 16. Turn there, please. 2 Chronicles 16. And I'll not be commenting on the context, but when you read the context, it will just support what you read immediately in the verse. God says something that I think is important for us to remember in this year. In 2 Chronicles 16, verse 9. 2 Chronicles 16, 9. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless before him. So there you are in all of your troubles this year, but the eye of the Lord is on you to sustain you in that trial. And he loves you, and the trial is no indication that he doesn't love you because he sent his son on the cross. You know he loves you. So what do we do with this? We turn to this new year together. Get a little older, a little grayer, hopefully a little wiser. What do we do with this? And I would say this first of all, people of God, recognize and acknowledge God's hand in everything. If obviously good things happen, then thank God for those good things. If hard things happen, know that God is in that too. The sovereign God who promises all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Which is no pious platitude, but the promise of your sovereign God to you. 
He can overturn the evil and bring his glory out of your good and out of the most tangled of circumstances. In Psalm 76.10 we read, Surely the wrath of men shall praise him. But I don't know why God is leading me this way. It's so painful. I just don't understand. You may say, did God send his own son to die for you? Did he? Then you can trust him. You know, I hear something about a friend. And what I hear about that friend doesn't fit what I know about him. And I say to the person who tells me that, you know what? I don't understand what you have observed, but I know him. I know him well. I know his character. And I know this. If I had the opportunity of sitting down with him and hearing his explanation, it would all be cleared up. You ever had that experience? In a far, far greater way. There is so much that is incomprehensible to us in this world. And there are those who would deny the goodness of God because of it. But I'm sorry. I know him, you see. And he sent his son to die for me. You see? And so the day will come when I can sit down and it will all be cleared up. Just trust him. Just believe him. Because think of this, think of it. Our Savior knew what it was to cry out as if God did not care. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But in those very words is the greatest proof that God did and does care. Do you see? Yes? Do I need to repeat it? But then also we think of this. I am so thankful that God has made this church to be a missions-minded church. We care about taking the gospel to the world. So has God given a mission to the church? Let's be encouraged. It will succeed. It may seem small, but it's going to succeed. And getting this truth deep down galvanizes for action. The greatest evangelists have been those committed to this truth. The truth of the sovereignty of God in the salvation of sinners. The church should aim, this church, this congregation should aim at sending out warriors for the truth to the corners of the earth. The Princetonians, the old Princeton guys, call the Great Commission the last command. And we are called to obey that command. Ashbel Green Simonton came to his call to missions under a sermon by Princeton theologian Charles Hodge. Let me read a little paragraph about him. He'd been challenged to give himself to foreign missions in a sermon by Charles Hodge. He went to Brazil in 1859, where in just eight years he began the first Presbyterian church, the first Presbytery, the first seminary, and the first evangelical press. 
He died of yellow fever on December 9, 1867, with a message for his congregation in Rio de Janeiro. God will raise up someone to fill my place. He will do his own work with his own instruments. We can only lean on the everlasting arm and be quiet. I'm so thankful to be used of the Lord in the preaching of his word, but I'm also totally aware God doesn't need me. He could take me out of this life. You'd call another minister and things would go right on. Because God is going to fulfill his work. And I don't know if Larry's here or not. But if he were, you could ask him, how has God fulfilled this in the Presbyterian church in Brazil? So our labor is not in vain in the Lord because Christ is risen and the Lord is sovereign. And we read in Ephesians 1.22 that God hath put all things under Christ's feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church. Which means his mission to the world will succeed. In places like Syria and Iraq and Iran and Lakeland. Because you see, the Father chose a people. And the Son died for those people. And He will see the result of His agony on the cross. And the Spirit of God will apply the gospel to those for whom Christ died and the Father chose. And the Lord will direct His message to His own wherever they may be. Remember the story of the Spurgeon sermon? The guy wait out there in the Australian bush doesn't know the gospel. How's the gospel going to get to him? Coming blowing in the wind as a newspaper. Picks it up. Reads it. A sermon by Charles Haddon Spurgeon and he's saved. God will take his gospel in the way of his sovereign choice to his people. Even here this morning... Someone says, I will never submit to him. I will never submit to him. I want the world. I want my own way. I want to follow my own path. I will never submit to him. And that is where God's sovereignty gives me the greatest comfort. Because God, having determined to save, does not stand by helplessly wringing his hands and saying, that is, if you're willing. He lovingly, omnipotently, irresistibly changes the wills of lost sinners and draws them out of darkness into light. Now this is a high view of God. Is it not? It's a high view of God that we Christians need to keep ever within our hearts as we move into this new year all of our days, all of our lives, a high view of God that is needed in the church to be preached and proclaimed today. And the greatest value, frankly, of this high view of God, well, turn to the book of Job, the last chapter. God shows Job at the end of the book something of his sovereignty. 
Basically, the problem with Job is, I don't get it, I don't understand. And God, at the end of the book, says, hey, you look to me, you don't need to understand. It should be sufficient for you that I understand. So Job has this great vision of the sovereignty of God. And what does it do to him? Chapter 42 of Job, beginning at verse 1. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear and I will speak, I will question you, and you will make it known to me. I had heard of you from the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. This high view of God exalts him in our thoughts and humbles us within our hearts. And that is where I need to be. And so do you. And so let us within our hearts prostrate ourselves before our God. O sinner, lie prostrate before Calvary's cross, before the awesome scene of the Son of God shedding His blood for sinners. And let us come to see that God's first, God's first and great object is His own glory. God's people said, Amen. Amen.